Welcome to MedSider, where you can learn from a mix of experienced medical device and medtech experts. These proven mentors will show you how to master the medtech space on your own terms without going to school. Now, here's your host, Scott Nelson. We will not invest in your company because it's clear you'll need a PMA. That's the stance that some medtech venture capitalists are currently taking. Why? Because costs continue to rise for early-stage medical device companies at a significant clip. While the approximate cost to obtain a PMA approaches $100 million, 80% of medtech exits over the last several years have been less than $250 million. Do the math. Those numbers are less than impressive. In this interview with Rich Ferrari, Managing Director of DeNovo Ventures, we'll learn more about the state of medtech venture capital and the corresponding impact on medical device startups. Here are some of the points we're going to cover. Novel ways to fund early-stage medical device companies. Two, early-stage versus late-stage medtech investing. What metrics are most important? Third, why does the FDA runway seem to get longer and longer over time? Four, how does Rich identify and validate an idea that is truly disruptive? Of course, we'll cover even more interesting insights in this interview. But before we dig in, you need to listen to these brief messages from our sponsors. And by the way, if you're interested in becoming a MedSider sponsor, go to MedSider.com forward slash sponsor. Again, that's MedSider.com forward slash sponsor. Now listen up. The simple reality is that a conference is a huge opportunity to build relationships with extraordinary people. People who might have a significant impact on your professional or personal success. To make sure that you maximize the return on your investment of time and money, you need to become a conference ninja. Go to MedSider.com forward slash Conference Ninja and download the free ebook. You'll find 13 steps you can take right now to make more connections at your next conference. Check it out. MedSider.com forward slash Conference Ninja. Go on an information diet with MedSider News. It's the quick and easy way to stay current with the medical device industry. The five most essential medical device stories of the week delivered straight to your inbox. And yes, it's totally free. So if you want to keep up to date with the latest medical device trends in a really easy way, go to MedSider.com forward slash news. Again, that's MedSider.com forward slash news. As a reminder, MedSider is on iTunes. Just do a search on iTunes for MedSider and you can subscribe to the podcast for free. That way all the new interviews will automatically download to your iTunes account. It's super easy. Also, if you like the podcast, don't forget to rate it. That really helps us out. Okay. For you ambitious med tech and medical device doers, here's your program. Hello, hello everyone. It's Scott Nelson. Welcome to another edition of MedSider, the place where you can learn from med tech and medical device experts on your own terms without going to school. And on today's episode, we have Rich Ferrari, who is the co-founder and managing director of DeNovo Ventures. So thanks for, your t- thanks for taking some time out of your, uh, your day today, Rich. I appreciate you coming on. No problem. Glad to do it. All right, so let's start out with a quote um, or a statement, I should say, uh, that I recently read in Mass Device, I believe, if I, if I remember correctly. But it was from Jody Hatcher, who's the CEO of Novation. And he was, um, his quote was something along the lines of, hospitals have a burning platform to reduce costs. So when you first read a statement like that, as a storied medtech VC yourself, what, what's, your, what's your gut reaction tell you about a statement like that? Well, I think he's fundamentally uh, right in that hospitals are constantly looking to reduce costs. Now, whether or not that relates specifically to medical devices 
referring to. Uh, but be that as it may, there's always pressure on reducing costs and devices, at least on the device side. And, you know, things that are commodity-related, commodity-oriented devices, things that don't really offer significant benefit, you got to ask yourself, why wouldn't those be really scrutinized and be put under tremendous pressure to, if they all look, if they all look alike and they all do the same thing, there should be a way to lower, lower the cost of them. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I think the margins for the hospital business is not all that great. And a lot of it's, you know, due to inefficiencies, and some of it has to do with, uh, you know, the devices they're buying and why they're buying and how they're used. Great. And I definitely want to get into some of those um, some of those aspects when you look at, at early stage uh, med tech companies and some of the some of the different ways to fund some of those some of those uh, companies that, that are actually uh, producing um, interesting devices. But we're in a, we're obviously in an era where exit valuations um, aren't 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 as high as as we've seen a significantly rise you know significant rise in the cost uh, to fund some of these early stage companies. But before we jump to that. When you see, I mean, some of your tech, bre- your, your VC tech brethren in, in kind of the social space, if you will, um, VCs that have funded Instagram, OMG Pop, Buddy Media, et cetera. When you look at some of those, ac- those, uh, those acquisitions, does it make you jealous when you, uh, when you, you know, when you compare that to uh, kind of where we're at within med tech today? <laughs> well, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would love to be in a deal that looked like Instagram, right? Fourteen people, uh, uh, you know, a billion-dollar return on uh, not that much capital being put in. Right. I guess the closest thing that we have to something like that, you know, might be like Ardeon. Sure. Right? Really yeah. not, when you look at Ardeon, not as much money went into Ardeon, although it took a bit longer than Instagram, but the outcome for it was exciting. But those, as you know, are few, very few and far between. And, and in reality, they're really few and far between, even in the tech space. Sure. Uh, for the most part, although they seem to resonate really well in the news, you know, Instagram and what kid interest might get sold for, and these other things. But yeah, I mean, there's no there's no doubt that the business in medical devices and the and the exits have been squeezed. Uh, with no IPO market, we've only got one market. That's the M&A side of it. Yep. And with every startup company that's been funded over the last, you know, six to eight years looking to try and get an exit, you know, the BD guys have an awful lot of material to be looking at and can certainly, uh, there's no rush for them to really buy anything. Sure. Uh, in, in a certain respect. So, yeah, I'd love to, I'd, I'd love to see, uh, quote, the 10x returns in venture capital, but they're they're just not there. They're few and far between. Right, and it's it's definitely a nice topic of conversation, right? The Instagrams, the the Buddy Media's, the OMG Pops of the world. But you, but you, I think you said it great. Um, you know, in, in our on our side, Ardeon was certainly celebrated as one of those big wins. But you, but you're right to your point. They are few and far between, and it's it's easy to talk about them, but uh, they don't, they certainly don't happen uh, very often. Yeah. But, no, it's like it's it's like everything, you know. Uh, it comes down to comps, and the comps on the tech area seem to be, you know, out of orbit and ridiculous. But they're there as real comps, and the comps in the medical device arena are much more bounded. I mean, we've got a long history of collection of data, and that data points to the fact that you know 
80% of the transactions are $250 million and below. Wow. And 55, 58% of them are $100 million and below. So that's just, that's the state of affairs. Yeah. Did you say, eight, so 80%, just, just to review, 80% are $250 million or below? 80% of the exits? No, absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You track the exits for the last decade. 80% are, are uh, under 250 million, and about 58% right at right at about 60 or so, right at certainly in the 50s, are 100 million and below. Gotcha. So you only see there's only a small number greater than 250. Wow. That that's that's a really interesting stat considering I I think Josh Macauer wrote, wrote a piece um, recently where he uh, he stated that the average cost of a PMA approaches $100 million these days. And when you look at, you know, the stat that you just mentioned, 80 percent. Um, well, the- it, does, it does, depending upon uh, the, the technology here. But no question, if you're, a, if you're in a space in which a PMA is required, generally speaking, by the time you get through that PMA, that clinical trial, the follow-up period, all the overhead, overhead costs and all the development costs that went into getting there, it, he's right. It's between seventy and a hundred million. Hmm. If you're in a neuro, like if you've got a neurostimulator, or a new wireless pacer, or you know something about which what I would call very high technological demands, you're going to be closer to the hundred million, right? Versus something that might be closer to the seventy million, but nonetheless, it's a big number. Sure. Yeah. No doubt. And I think. I, uh, I interviewed Rudy Mizaki not too long ago, and he actually mentioned that some of his, uh, his, uh, his counterparts in the VC world won't even fund a device that's going to require a, a, you know, a PMA. Um, do you find that to be true, that, that statement? Well, I, yeah, I think that, again, I think that generally speaking, the prevailing thought process there, most VCs would say, I don't want to get involved in a PMA. Mm-hmm. It's just too costly, too long, the follow-up, it, 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 I don't want to go there. Uh, so I think that's probably true. But I have to tell you, I mean, I've seen some 510Ks that are beginning to look like PMAs. I mean, we just got done with one in an orthopedics company. They did a 300-patient randomized controlled trial. Wow. That was a five, and that was a 510K. Hmm. And so, so the lines between oh. a 510K and a PMA are starting to blur. <laughs> It depends, again, on the area. They can become awful blurred. Right. Right. So, again, everything's relative. So you can't have a blanket statement so they wouldn't fund a PMA because you had a PMA in which it only was 120 patients. And maybe one year follow-up might not look so bad. Sure. Yep. Right? So. Gotcha. No, great great points. And so let's jump to some of it. Let's, let's use that as kind of a springboard to jump into the next topic. That would be if, 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 a, um, if an early stage, you know, company, whether they're in the orthopedic space, the cardiovascular space, the, you know, you mentioned neuromodulation um, just a little bit ago, whatever, whatever disease state they're looking at, what are some of the novel ways that, that early stage companies are using um, to drive capital? Um, in order, to, in order to, to get to that point where they can de-risk an investment, you know, for a potential M&A acquisition? Well, you know, again, there's no, as you know, there's no perfect uh, pathway to this. But there are a number of, of folks, entrepreneurs I've dealt with, that have gone the path of super angels to start. 
you know, trying to get angel dollars in early and then look for government grants. Mm. In fact, I'm involved with a company right now that's actually done quite well on the government grant side, a million dollars. And for a small early stage startup, you couple that with, you know, some angel dollars maybe of a million, that's two million. And in in depending upon how they structured, two million for an early stage transaction should be enough to have you prove out the method of action, get all the quality work done, all the GLP work done, actually file, in this particular case, let's call it a 510K, and actually have human clinicals on $2 million. That's pretty good. If you got half of it from grants, that's a pretty good deal, right? Yep. Now, those, are, I must say, are not, you know, you don't see those very often. You see those few and far between. So more often what you see is some sort of combination of angels in the beginning and then those VCs who like to play in the early stage, generally raising a more modest amount of money. Let's call it in the one and a half to two and a half million dollar range. So that you reduce risk, you get through those early risk reduction components. And then you go out and try to raise the bigger round. Right. So with that, with that said, and I, I think it's, and I'm not sure exactly where you guys are at DeNovo, but it seems like most medtech VCs, um, when you look at their portfolio, they, they much, in, I guess in today's economic environment, they much prefer late stage deals versus early stage deals. Do you see angels become, you know, as the main bridge from, you know, from early stage to later stage when, you know, when folks like yourself can, can make a significant well, investment? Yes. Well, yeah, generally speaking, and there is some other models, you know, out there. There are, quote, you know, the incubator sort of models. Uh, there is a model, believe it or not, I'll put a plug in for myself, uh, that I had just put together uh, with a group out of Switzerland and, and a group that I put together here. Uh, to, to kind of bridge that exact phenomenon, which is if you've got an entrepreneur or a doctor who's got a really great idea and has done actually some work on it that's having trouble getting the money, this particular structure that I put together is if that technology passes the due diligence process, the funding is taken care of for it up to first in man. Okay. And the engineering is all done in Switzerland. Okay. So... That's an alternative to having to go out and trying to get angel dollars, setting a valuation. This, this, this doesn't even set a valuation. It just parses out uh, ownership pieces to the entrepreneur and to the group, my group and to the group in Switzerland that's actually quite economical, and it's all funded to first in man, and then you go out and raise, raise dollars. So there are, different, you know, there are different approaches to trying to do this. And I think you're right. Most VCs today would prefer to do a later stage de-risk transaction. But you got to remember why. And the reason they want to do that is they need a return. Mm-hmm. They need to score a goal. <laughs> Otherwise, the likelihood of them raising another fund is very difficult. So they get, the prevailing thinking today is, I don't want to take on any risk. Mm. I just don't want risk. Gotcha. And 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 that gotta find those guys who are still interested in taking on a little bit of the risk, you know. Yep, yep. And 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 those are those few are those are those um, venture capital 
those VC companies, are those few and far between that are willing to, to take on uh, risk these days? I mean, are, is, there, is DeNovo yeah, considered one of those firms? Were, well, we were when we were making new investments. And now well, we're, we're at a stage with our third fund where we have reserved the cash and capital for the current portfolio, which, by the way, is where a vast majority of all VC firms are. So if a firm hasn't raised money, let's say in the last two years or three, two years, let's pick that, they're most likely going to be reserving their capital for the current portfolio they've established. So the number of early stage guys clearly has dwindled down. Got it. Okay. And, and that, that, that different model that you just referenced a few minutes ago, um, I'd like to dig into that a little bit. Do you, do you refer to it as a certain model? And, and I, help me understand um, how it's, how it's, Different than the than the incubation model that that we've off, that, that yeah, most okay. people on this call well, are familiar with. Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. It's really not an incubator. We call it a medical device generator, and the reason we call it that is because, like for the first one that we're running through this program, these are div these are uh, technologies that have already been developed to a certain level. For example, you know, someone coming out of the Stanford Biodesign Program, where they have developed and run through a series of tests uh, all under the program specifics, right? Mm -hmm. So they would, have done, they, would have, they would have done animals. They would have done all the method of action, how it works. But as they graduate, they don't have a, they don't have a way to fund it. Many of the graduates are postdocs. They go on and doing their surgical residency. What do they do with that technology? Or this could be a doctor who developed it, it developed the technology far enough along in his garage, as you know, many of them do, or wherever, but they can't get the funding done. Mm -hmm. This model is where we look at it and say, okay, we like the space, we like the clinical rationale behind it. We'll now take it all the way to first and man for you. And you maintain a nice position of the company. So really, it's not an it's not a incubator. We're not incubating it. We're taking it and finishing it, generating it through all of the different steps. Gotcha. Through a very methodical process, and the funding's there for it. So it's all encompassing, so to speak. Right. I see. And so, is that? Are, are, are novel sort of models like the, 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 the medical device generator model, that, that your, your model that you just mentioned, is that what we're going to have to get to in order to see some of these, uh, these disruptive technologies, technologies actually get to a point where a, a large strategic would actually acquire them? Well, again, I don't know if it'll be what will create the vehicle for a large strategic to acquire it, right? Mm -hmm. Because the larger strategics... I think the large strategics will always have to require disruptive or new innovative products because their structure prevents them, in a way, from doing this kind of stuff internally. Right. So the startup world and the acquisition world are really a structural component because, you know, the big guys... What are they spending their money on? They're spending their money on those franchises that are carrying the bulk of the revenue. So they put their top guys on those programs, and they're constantly innovating around, like the perp valve business, right? Mm -hmm. But the perp valve guys 
really aren't developing the ancillary products that the perp valve business needs, like embolic protection. Sure. Femoral, how do you close the hole in your leg? That's 18 French. Hey there, it's Scott, and thanks for listening in so far. The rest of this conversation is only available via our private podcast for MedSider Premium members. If you're not a premium member yet, you should definitely consider signing up. You'll get full access to the entire library of interviews dating back to 2010. This includes conversations with experts like Renee Ryan, CEO of Cala Health, Nadim Yared, CEO of CVRX, and so many others. As a premium member, you'll get to join live interviews with these incredible medical device and health technology entrepreneurs. In addition, you'll get a copy of every volume of MedSider Mentors at no additional cost. To learn more, head over to MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium. Again, that's MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium.